Hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the review show uh, where we review classic episodes of black and white television from The Series Crisis, 1956, to The Three Day Week in 1974, the golden age of British television. And as usual, we will be perusing the latest episodes of The Black and White Saints starring Roger Moore, currently going out on Talking Pictures Television. And we are now into series three. And this week, myself, Guy Morgan, and my co-host, David Newell, will be talking about The Scorpion, The Revolution Racket, and The Saint Steps In. Now, The Scorpion sounds really menacing. Would you like to pre-see um, it, Dave? Yeah, now, you're right. As a villain, villain's name, the Scorpion, sounds a lot more sinister than that one we had a few weeks back where it was the High Fence, <laughs> uh, which sounds like a gardening feature. This one is, is much more uh, um, in your face because it's a scorpion. It sounds sinister. And we get bang into a sinister start um, because Philip Latham, running around in an old coat, a flat cap and a, and a, and a ropey accent, um, is being pursued by someone on a motorbike. Philip Latham runs into a telephone box, phones the saint. I don't know whether he had his number handy or Simon is listed in most London directories, I don't know, and asks if he can come round. Philip Latham is playing someone called Long Harry Garrett, who is, he's a tea leaf, he's a thief, he breaks into places and nicks things. Um, and Simon's quite at ease with this meeting a fellow thief. We've always thought that Simon Temple might do a little bit of thieving himself. Um, Harry tells us that he's stolen something and handed it over to someone, a very valuable letter, which has now resulted in blackmail. And we all know Simon's views on blackmail. So he goes to see the person who Harry thinks is being the victim of, of blackmail. The victim, like all blackmail victims, denies it and we wonder who may be blackmailing him there are some suspects in the house there is his secretary who is doing a few sinister things um listening at doors very carefully lifting up telephone receivers to listen in on calls and she's committing that cardinal sin in the same series she's got dark hair so she's bound to be a robin but in a nice switch it turns out that she's just protecting her employer, who is indeed being a victim of blackmail. He's told to make a payoff, has to go to um, a very peculiar looking um, club in London's glittering West End called the Bird's Nest, which doesn't look as if it can seat more than about 10 people. So I'm not quite sure how Birdie, the owner, kind of makes any money about it. But anyway, blackmail victim meets Nairi Dawn Porter, um, who is a hostess, but also seems to be involved in the blackmail ring. He pays her off. She then gives it to the guy we know from, from the bike, and that turns out to be Dudley Sutton, apparently just wearing the same outfit and probably the same bike that he had in the Leather Boys, which he made in the same year. So he just, just walked from one set to the other, not having to change. But we all know that Dudley Sutton is a bit too thick and dense to be the uh, the leader of this gang. No, that rests with a villain known only as the Scorpion. Right. Uh, Symes to um, um, bring the the real blackmailer to justice with a bit of rough stuff along the way. <laughs> 
Ronald Lee Hunt is the blackmailed businessman who appears to have done something slightly unethical and maybe not declared a certain number of shares. I don't know whether that affects his tax position or not, because that is potentially quite tricky if you get into trouble with HMRC. Yeah, but don't forget, guys, this is a work of fiction. So, you know, that would, um, given the advancements in accounting methods, that, that kind of thing would never be allowed to have happened nowadays. Fortunately, Ronald Lee Hunt has as his chief advisor his long-standing friend and solicitor, Geoffrey Belden. Yeah, that's handy to have someone like that to advise you on, on all your tax issues. Yes, and to be with you every step of the way in dealing with the blackmail, which obviously he says shouldn't be paid. Shouldn't be paid, just go straight to the police, he says. And then, in a twist... Didn't see this coming. Turns out that the person who the blackmail E has been trusting, has been confiding in, turns out to be none other than the scorpion himself. We know he's a scorpion because he actually keeps pet scorpions. He keeps quite a few in his house, kind of like leather boy, troublemaker. Dudley Sutton um, is in his, his thrall. But I think Dudley Sutton's starting to get ideas above his station and thinks that's, that maybe they can, they can be bigger and better at this. But the scorpion, for it is he, seems to have bigger plans. Now, thankfully... Simon gets Nairi Dawn Porter to blow the whistle on things because she doesn't want to get messed up in no mess like that. I don't, not, never. The dark-haired secretary turns out to be a good old stick, perfectly helpful. But she does risk her life because the saint receives a package which he then hands over to her to open. An unexpected yes. package. It's not from Amazon. So, you know, you've got no idea what somebody might have ordered for you. And she opens it, and this thing crawls out onto her hand. It's a scorpion. It's a deadly scorpion. Now, I have a story about that. When I was on special ops in Central America, <laughs> I was in the jungle. Well, I say the jungle. It was actually a guest house in a rainforest, and it was called Il Mondo Perdido which is okay. the lost world. And there's a sign saying, El Mondo Perdido, the lost world. Anyway, they had a shop in this guest house of T-shirts and stuff like that to do with wildlife and things. And one had a very attractive scorpion design on the... So the girl I was with was sorting through this and looked at this design, which then promptly crawled off the T-shirt onto her hand. Uh. And there's that moment where you sort of think this this is as big as her hand this this thing yeah it's like half a lobster um and with great presence of mind she flicked her hand and it fell to the floor and i said oh. shall i kill it and the guest house owner who was an english woman in her 40s don't ask me how she got there i said yes and i went and but these things are very fast and i think i caught the tail well, oh, it's got so many legs, that's why it's... Yeah, so and it just scuttled off because they have scorpions like we have woodlice. So that was quite a realistic scene from the saint. Is it true that the bigger the scorpion, the less dangerous they are? It's the smaller ones which are more poisonous. 
I didn't stop to ask. Or did I hear that in a film? <laughs> it was one of those moments that was not to be repeated, <laughs> thankfully. Mm. But yes, I can say that's what they do. They crawl out onto your hand and you find yourself staring at them and you sort of think, I need to get rid of this. So yes, the dark-haired secretary risks her life or is put in danger yes. by Simon, depending on mm. how you look at it. And, <laughs> uh, and then they wind up... Eventually, track down, they follow Dudley Sutton, Eddie Black, because what they've done is they sort of turn the tables on him and Patsy Butler, Nairi Dawn Porter has begun to fill in the blanks a little bit. We also have good old Inspector um, Claude Eustace Teal hot on the case as as well. So everything kind of like falls into place and they sort of tripped Eddie into going back to um, the location. We have one of those lines then, which you always love in these things, I told you never to come here type lines, which means that Simon can turn up, confront the villain, and rather than there being a big confrontation, rather than there being a big fight, rather than the cops turn up and arrest him, the Scorpion, Geoffrey Bailden, does the honourable thing of plunging his hand into one of his Scorpion cases. And we've already been told earlier in the episode he's got about 14 or 15 seconds, and that's it. And sure enough, he croaks, then the police turn up and everything is kind of reset back to normal. They actually do use quite a bit of location street stuff. Yeah, there's eerie opening sequences where um, Dudley Sutton is chasing Philip Latham, going through kind of like empty street after empty street. There's um, a bit with Simon turning the tables on him so that the um, pursuer becomes the pursued, which is done in a nice little way. But yeah, it's that eeriness talking about earlier in the, in the locations. The locations are used quite well, but there's, there's no one around. Mm. It's, it's that London which is almost apocalyptic. You kind of expect a Cyberman or a Dalek to turn around the corner. <laughs> you used to be able to do it. You can't do it anymore. You used to, when I was in London in the 80s, if you went into the city on like a Sunday morning about like 10 and you'd be walking around say like the bank of england you'd be walking around st paul's cathedral you nowhere would be open not even those london souvenir shops and there'd be no coffee shops and such you know you've got no greggs no starbucks no none of that nonsense and you could walk you know for ages and you wouldn't see anyone until one sunday and at first they didn't quite know what was going on as you said that sci-fi feel and I just began to see in the distance these silvery figures and the sun was glinting off them, but they were moving around and I couldn't figure out what they were. And they were right at the end of the street until I got nearer and it was competitors from the London Marathon in their silver foil blankets. And not an alien invasion. <laughs> Thank goodness, no. <laughs> yes, so that's... The Scorpion, it is one of those slightly grubby London crime stories that uh, feature in The Saint with some lowlifes, a very seedy club. When you say London's glittering West End, it's Paddington. I always argue most bars and clubs that you see in films and TV you never want to go in. And, and Birdies looks like a right hole. 
Yes, it's not a sophisticated place, even though it has Nari Dawn Porter. Now, Nari Dawn Porter, who has one Avengers point from uh, the studio days, and also has, fair to say, mixed reviews from us. <laughs> yes. Uh, though, although she was very good in the Foresight Saga. Yeah, Foresight Saga, The Protectors, yeah. The Foresight Saga. Yes, and she was in The Protectors. <laughs> yes. To be honest, I didn't recognise her at first because she'd got her hair no, blonde. Hair's all different, yeah. Hair's all, all different. She's at least a couple of wigs. I don't know if any of that was her own hair at all. A range of accents. Mm-hmm. And was rather good in this, I thought. I did kind yeah, of wonder... Did what was asked of her. Quite. You know, being blonde, about five foot six, in her mid-twenties, mm. but on the wrong side of the tracks this time. And she comes to not exactly a sticky end, but it's implied that she's, when she's thrown downstairs by Dudley Sutton, that she's paralysed. So she's unfortunate in uh, in that respect. Yeah. So, Nari Dawn Porter, or NDP, she's got 55 screen credits, 51 appearances as the Contessa de Contini in The Protectors, and she's, of course, a New Zealander. Now, in a reverse of the usual trope, the dark-haired secretary is played by Catherine Woodville, who has two Avengers points and was Dr. Keel's doomed fiancé in the first ever episode. Oh, right. And then she's in another studio shoot called Propellant 23. And shortly after this saint, or well, she was soon to be briefly married to Patrick McNee. Oh. And I think that only lasted a couple of years um, from the dates. It looks like then she moved to the States. Was in quite a lot of stuff. Um, she appeared as chief antagonist in the Star Trek episode For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky as Dr. McCoy's love interest and high priestess. Um, she was also in Danger Man, Francis Drake, Zed Cars, The Third Man, Sergeant Cork. She's got another saint to come in a few weeks. Um, elsewhere in America, she appeared in Mission Impossible, It Takes a Thief, Mannix, The Virginian, Harry O, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, and The Rocks Files, and Wonder Woman. So that's quite a career on both sides of the pond. Absolutely, yeah. Dudley Sutton, we've mentioned, he's a pillar of television and a long career. <laughs> Included One Avengers Point, Early Coronation Street, The Baron, The Human Jungle, Softly Softly, Department S, Randall and Hopkirk, Zed Cars, The Sweeney, a few single plays, 159 screen credits, including, of course, his 70 appearances in Lovejoy. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, he's, he shares with Rog screen time in Crossplot. Indeed. So, you know, these people obviously ran into each other on a regular basis. Um, Philip Latham, we've mentioned before, probably best remembered for the Troubleshooters, 110 episodes. He has two points, two Sergeant Corks. This is the last of his two saints and a pillar of television. Jeffrey Belden, or in other words, Cat Weasel. <laughs> Himself. A huge career, two points, two saints, single plays, in nearly everything, a star. Uh, Ronald Lee Hunt, two and a half points, not to be confused with William Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's easily done. It um, is. And he, he's been in, um, he was in a, a saint episode as well, not long ago. 
Um, Are you yes. given that awful striped jacket? Oh, is that the like arrow of God? Yes, he looked like he'd been given a reupholstered deck chair. <laughs> Thomas Baptiste, who's from British Guyana, uh, Three Saints, and a lot of other stuff, 80 screen credits, uh, though unfortunately not The Avengers, and Ugh. had quite a few lines in this. So it's good to see somebody being credited from his background, if you, you know, British Guyana, because in The Saint... Uh, actors of colour actually very seldom get a mention in the credits. And, uh, of course, he appears in various other things, including Return of the Saint, I believe. Uh, we give him a salute. Uh, Bill Cummings, two saints, three points. Fred Davis, one point. Uh, Michael Dempsey, one point, And 16 saints in the uncredited department. And Joyce Grant from South Africa, uncredited in spite of being the nurse with lines. I think she should have a word with her agent. <laughs> so that wraps up the Scorpion. Next is the Revolution Racket. Now, there's a few things to say about this. I have some scribbled notes. Um, I think there are a few tropes, and possibly your favourite trope in this is that the title is the last line. Is the last line. I love that. I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. Um, yeah, would you like to sum it up? Yes, we are um, somewhere in South America, um, uh, obviously for South of the Border Disorder, and um, the saint is watching a local sporting event when a man with a gun and another man ask him to come with them, and he is taken along, and just at the moment when we think that Symes is in deadly danger, um, he tackles the two assailants and bursts through the door that they were about to take him into when he finds himself in a very fashionable restaurant. Um, he meets the jolly captain of police, Captain Xavier, played by that marvellous Sydney Green Street tribute act, Eric Pullman. Uh, and he is just kind of like laying necessarily a trap, but it's, it's almost like a bit of bait. Um, to say about the saint's reputation and how he longs to uh, help um, women in distress and that maybe there's a woman in distress in this very restaurant at the moment and our eyes are drawn to the familiar figure of Suzanne Lloyd sitting pensively on her own cradling a drink and asking for a phone to speak to her brother and her brother played by Ed Bishop is in a bit of bother because um, he's got some gun-toting thugs in his hotel room. And, and so, much like a moth to a flame, Simon can't help but get involved. And then we get a very involved plot, because it turns out um, that brother and sister, Ed Bishop and Suzanne Lloyd, despite their innocent-looking demeanour, are in fact gun runners. And they bought a load of guns which are in a boat off the coast waiting to be unloaded once they find a decent buyer and um, the buyers that are trying to muscle in on this are the enrique brothers who are going to use the guns for a revolution as it's that old joke of when uh, doing geography and you're studying south america and you're shown does anyone know what the national pastimes of south american countries are and then you're shown the picture of a bullfight in all its gory detail and someone says, oh, revolting. And the teacher says, no, that's the second national pastime. <laughs> In this case, it appears that there's now a double cross 
in operation because they haven't got any guns at all. They've only got about two boxes of them. The rest is full of all scrap metal and pipes. Um, so they enlist the saint to see through this swap and exchange so that the Enrique brothers uh, get about five guns and um, loads of broken pieces of pipe um, and they get their money. But then there's yet another twist when it turns out that they're not brother and sister, they're husband and wife. And this was their plan all along to end up Simon being the dupe um, and left out to dry. But the Saint's too shrewd a customer um, for this. And he manages to, to clear up this involved and protracted mess, much to the benefit of Captain Xavier much to the benefit of the country itself and as it turns out in a lovely little twist um, yet another one at the end with all the money that they made from this this gun deal which um, Simon has stolen it goes to UNICEF and as we all know Roger Moore was a lifelong um, advocate and for a while ambassador to UNICEF as we were only talking about the other week um, in the film The Saint nice little bit at the end where Val Kilmer's listening to the car radio Roger's voice um, telling us that millions have been donated to the UNICEF project. So it's a lovely little cyclic thing, the Revolution Racket. Um, tropes to look out for here are everyone is wearing light-coloured clothing, those white jackets with big stains under the armpits. Everyone has a go at an accent, including Roger himself, because he, at one point, he disguises himself as Sebastian Toombs. Oh, that yeah. old alias. Yes. Sebastian Toombs, who's involved um, in this in this shenanigans, he doesn't go full out with much of a disguise. It's more an accent than anything else. Um, but yeah, it's twist and and counter twist, as if Terry Nation was making the scriptwriter for this episode was making a deal with himself after writing a page and just going, right, Terry, let's see if you're smart enough to put a twist on that. Oh yes, I will. I mean that was quite neat we didn't get any pearls dissolved in wine no but we did get eric polman probably wearing the same suit and hat that he wore in treza when yes, he played another yeah. cop it's quite nice that he is cunning enough to have embroiled the saint in intrigue and basically getting to do off the books work for his department <laughs> without asking him there's a couple of other things. I think we should mention the fact that Suzanne Lloyd's character has dark hair, which means that she's Alarm trouble. Alarm bells were ringing when I started watching. I was quite intrigued by the fact that she and her brother, when you later learn out that they're actually husband and wife, mm. when she is trying to get Simon on board with the con trick. Morning, Simon. Come on in. Morning. Sherman, this is Mr. Simon Temper, my brother Sherman. Nice to meet you. I'm pleased to know you. Uh, would you like some breakfast? No, thank you. I've already had mine. Well, sit down. Okay. Has uh, Doris told you the plan? Yes, we uh, talk till well into the early hours. And you sort of think, well, given what we saw at the beginning of that conversation, I suspect there may have been more to it, which means that Ed Bishop presumably has a very broad-minded attitude <laughs> to his marriage. Yes, an open relationship. That's right, particularly when it means that you might be earning a huge amount of money. That's one trope. The dunkhead woman is in trouble. Uh, the revolution racket is the last line. There's a few other, I don't know whether they count as tropes, but there's a nice bit of editing when they're in a dock quayside 
and you know that what you're looking at is the warehouses at Elstree, and mm. then there's a gangplank, and there's some stop footage of a ship, and then they go up and down the gangplank, you can't see the ship, and then they're in a hold, yeah. which looks very much like a darkened soundstage full of crates. <laughs> um, yeah, I do like the fact that they got some prop man or prop person to paint the name, is it A. Chavez, on the side <laughs> on one of Elstree's warehouses or location buildings with a big can of black paint. Just go and do this. Don't paint that over there. In our separate showcase follow-up edition when we talk about the benefits of studio versus real location you can do that sort of stuff and you can actually pull off what is convincing enough for a dockyard scene particularly if you throw in a few seagull noises yes yeah yeah you you're suddenly sort of swept away as to where you are yeah there's some interesting roads which don't necessarily look as if it's all home counties it looks as if it's a home county sandpit Doctor Who styling. Most of it is at night as well. Yes. So, yeah, I think it works pretty well. It's quite. It's it's got a lot of nice little twists and mm. a fair amount of humour in it. It's got one rather nasty henchman who gets a bit free and easy with Suzanne Lloyd and um, eventually gets his come up. Yes, the, the familiar Hal Galili, mm. becoming a regular friend. Um, regular star in these episodes. That's right. He has five saints. Uh, last seen in the ever-loving spouse. Quite a few single plays. Orlando, Department S, Jason King, one Avengers point. We've talked about Eric Pullman, second of two saints. He has one point in a Venus Smith episode. As we mentioned... The original voice of Blofeld. Which is quite a claim to fame. Peter Arn, just this saint, but more importantly, four Avengers points. Ah, um, and the return of the Pink Panther. Yeah, nearly everything from the 50s to the 80s. Ed Bishop, I think this is first saint. Uh, obviously, he's best known for starring in UFO. But hold on a minute. He's in the next saint. <gasps> he is. The saint well, steps in. How has that been allowed to happen? Well, and weirdly enough, Annette Andre appears in the next episode we're going to talk about, The Saint Steps In, and then she's in the next one, which is set in Australia. It's like a repertory theatre. It is, and once you tune into that fact, you don't mind, really. Mm. Yeah, this week, I'm playing so-and-so. <laughs> Tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be a South American dictator. Michael Godfrey, loads of stuff, a lot of ITC productions. As previously discussed, uh, Alec Mango, though he was born in Paddington, is two points. Uh, the Birdies Club. Uh, yeah, and in those and his three saints, he played foreigners. Uh. Clive Kezes, Kays, Kezes, from Gibraltar. He was obviously the man to call if revolution was in the title of the show. Here in the Revolution Racket is other saint, the Reluctant Revolutionary. Um, he was in the Vendetta episodes, the Morning Man, the Money Man, and the Honoured Man. Uh, I think there's... It's a pattern forming there. Yeah. Plus three episodes of Danger Man. Huh? Ricardo Montes, one point, but loads of other stuff. Apart from the Seven Saints, One Champions, Department S, Man of the World, Man in a Suitcase... 
and later 42 episodes of Mind Your Language. Michael Lynch, One Point, One Saint, Single Play, Special Branch, Doctor Who, amongst others. And much the same for Richard Jessup, One Point, One Saint, plenty of other stuff. So the Revolution Racket was a jolly little exercise. It's the second time the Saint has managed to derail a coup. Mm, yeah. Right, the Saint steps in, and I think... The key word about this entire episode is irony. <laughs> um, yes, the saint steps in, um, which it really does sound like one of the old Leslie Charteris stories or books, because it is one of the old Leslie Charteris stories or books. In this case, we have um, not so much breaking the fourth wall, but we, we have almost like a meta opening. <laughs> in which two characters, who turn out to be recurring characters in the episode, are at a bar and spy that it's Simon Templar. And they begin to act out this idea of, of what he's up to, this idea of, oh, it's probably a damsel in distress. There's probably going to be someone to turn up in a moment and say, Mr. Simon Templar, you're the only person who can help me. And sure enough, um, as if on cue, someone does turn up and say, Mr. Simon Templar, you're the only person who can help me. And it's Annette Andre, who is blonde yeah. in her 20s, but not the only blonde in this episode. No, there is. Um, Roger's got a choice. Um, although, I must admit, Jeffrey Keane's daughter does do a lot of the running. She, <laughs> she is, I believe the expression is, she's a bit fast. Yes. But if you remember, in The Saint Plays With Fire, she was even faster. Yes. So whether Justine Lord actually had it written into her contract that she had to be the naughty one. Yes, in this episode, please. Um, but then we are thrown into a story of industrial espionage and intrigue. And we've got Peter Vaughan, who's looking very, very menacing. Um, he appears to dispatch two renter thugs, Neil McCarthy and Michael Robbins, to kidnap Annette Andre when she's gone to Hampstead Heath. Thankfully, because the saint realises that it's not a joke, she really is in danger and does need help, he manages to intervene um, with a bit of rough and tumble on Hampstead Heath, as there is most weekends, I would imagine. And then we have the plot come in. Peter Vaughan comes into the scene and he is the executive assistant of a well-known industrialist played by Geoffrey Keane. And, and it turns out that Annette Andre's dad has invented something called Process G, which enables the, is it the rapid manufacture of synthetic fibres? That's right. And it yeah, will put so everyone can, else out of business. more polyester and more nylon than we know what to do with. And of course it's indestructible. Well, how bad can that be? <laughs> no trouble at all. But it appears that Peter Vaughan, um, whose, whose character name is Walter Devan. It's odd to, to have a person named after a piece of furniture, but in this case, he appears to be the, the villain of the piece. Neil McCarthy and Michael Robbins keep turning up, um, trying to beat Seven Shades out of Simon. The original formula for Process G needs to be discovered, um, and it appears that Geoffrey Keane is being duped himself. He doesn't know anything about process g his advisors have told him that it's worthless it's it's and useless it'll never work at all and he's very sympathetic to annette andre's character and um yeah. wants to help 
as much as he can. Yeah, which is a surefire sign that he's the wrong one. Uh, and this this is where it begins to unravel a little bit. I don't quite think he's thought this through. In the old bunker, which um, is adjacent to his, his country pile, he uh, has Annette Andre in there kidnapped, also has her dad kidnapped, and again, after a bit of rough and tumble, has Simon in there as well. But only after he's offered Simon a job at a hundred grand a year, which was you know, quite a lot of money in those days, and explained that he is actually quite a benevolent employer, that his, mm. this is purely for the benefit of his workers and their families. We've just completed our new plant, Templar. 33 acres of new construction. Erected and tooled at a cost of millions. And Process G would make it obsolete. Exactly. I employ 30,000 men. Now, at an average of three dependents a man, that makes 120,000 people dependent on me for a livelihood. I care about those people very much. And you sort of think, oh, the caring capitalist. And it's only then that when he's taken them to his private bunker that he explains the options. Well, then I'd have to draw your attention to these air vents. They were designed for the introduction of fresh air, which we're all enjoying at this moment. They're also equipped for the introduction of poison gas. Yes, and they're, they're not nice. No, he's a, definitely an uncaring capitalist in this. <laughs> they're the worst kind. Um, I think we've hit on a trope. This is an uh, underground building that yes. the saint and other people are being held prisoner in. The, the professor says that, well, I need to get my hands on my notes, don't I? Because I can't remember it. It's not all in the head. Um, even though he is accused of having it all in his head. Um, and he doesn't have it all in his head to get his notes. But whilst they're making that decision, Simon goes all MacGyver and comes up with a way of perhaps foiling the baddies. This involves a damp newspaper, a, a metal grill shelving from an oven, um, and a piece of electrical flex as well. And they manage to rig... So that if anyone touches the doorknob whilst they're stood on the metal, they will fry. Um, and there's a little bit of tension, there's a little bit of suspense because we don't know whether Peter Vaughan will do it. And eventually does and he fries. And Andre is really shocked by that, even though they told her what was going to happen. And she um, found the flags. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If someone stands on that, they're going to fry. And she screams when it really does happen. Then... There's little resistance because there's only um, on the buses Michael Robbins to foil because he's already shot me on the carpet. They manage to escape and then break into Jeffrey Keane's house and in which the knife is twisted because his slatternly daughter has already phoned the police. And so it's all smiles again. And presumably Ed Bishop, as the American hands over a million dollars and process g which is going to put everyone out of business including <laughs> the thousands of employees from jeffrey king's company so america comes to dominate the market in synthetic textiles oh they're not thought it through no no um so you're not quite sure who comes out winning on that there's quite a lot of gun pointing in this episode 
Um, there is. There's quite a lot of gun pointing, quite a lot of, of gun play. Um, I mean, it's mostly by the saint, but also Peter Vaughan and the henchman. And then um, in a nice rounding out of the episode, the saint, who's only kind of mark the fact that he's been involved in all this intrigue, is a bit of a dark bruise on his chin, goes and meets the two chaps at the bar that he was talking to earlier. Oh, may I have the pleasure of buying you gentlemen a drink? Thanks. No beautiful women tonight? No. No one wanting to tell you their troubles? Fortunately not. You see, this is the sort of thing that happens when a beautiful woman says, Can, Can I, I have a word, word with you in private? Simon Darling. Nice big cyclic episode, a bit meta. Do you remember what their credits were? They are credited as, um, according to IMDb, they are listed as intelligent undergraduate and husky undergraduate. To give you an idea, Husky Undergraduate is played by David Jackson, with some of you may remember as Gam in Blake 7. They are called those. They are called Intelligent Undergraduate and Husky Undergraduate. They obviously had, well, you had grants in those days, so you could afford to hang out at the Savoy, whatever, yeah, hotel bar. Yeah, I mean, in, in London in the 80s, it just used to, used to be the Ritz-Carlton for us every weekend. <laughs> yes, Intelligent Undergraduate was Nicholas Pennell, Pennell, shortly to appear in 14 episodes of the Foresight Saga, and in fact a, appeared in a huge amount of classic drama. This is the second of Two Saints, and in fact... He was one of the main characters in an episode of May Gray on Talking oh, Pictures Television, possibly from the same year. Elsewhere, we've got um, Jeffrey Keane, who, you know, a star, probably best known for The Troubleshooters, or Mogul, as it was originally called, 128 episodes. He guested in plenty of other shows and was, of course, a fixture in Roger Moore's Bond movies. Absolutely, yeah. Justine Lord, we saw in the same place with Fire and the Bunko Artists, and she's in another four episodes. Elsewhere, ITV Plays of the Week, The Prisoner, Troubleshooters, uh, six of those, Human Jungle, Compact, and as we've said before, the all-important Avengers point. Peter Vaughan, another star, 230 screen credits, everything from Interpol Calling to Game of Thrones via the gold robbers porridge and the most menacing long john silver ever you were too young um, for that yeah and and to make it even more menacing when he was married to billy whitelaw in like the 50s and early 60s both kind of like fledgling actors at the, at the time uh, and to earn a little bit of extra money they used to take in lodgers and and one of their lodgers was donald pleasant what a creepy household to be in. Peter Vaughan and, and Donald Pleasant. They could have shot a movie right there, couldn't they? <laughs> it sounds like something from Stella Street. Um, <laughs> um, Peter Vaughan, of course, had one Avengers point. Moultrie Kelsall, 93 screen credits up to his death in 1980, and due back in the Saint in colour, fretting about the Loch Ness Monster. Annette Andre, one and a half Avengers points, Sergeant Court, Gideon's Way, Human Jungle, Adam Adamant, loads of other stuff. She's in Five Saints, including the next episode, playing someone different, and of course, faced up to those giant ants. All right. Did I forget anything? Oh, yeah, Randlin Hopkirk, where she played <laughs> Genie and was criminally underused. In fact, I would say she probably had more lines in this than almost any other show she appeared in. <laughs> um, 
Neil McCarthy, three Avengers points, 13 episodes of Cat Weasel, Danger Man, Maygrey, Ghost Squad, nearly every show you could think of. hundred Zulu and Clash of the Titans. Which they modelled. The centaur, I think it is. The, the, Calibos, the, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, it looks like him. I think he's a bit of a star. 117 screen credits and died far too young in 1985. Yeah, because he was in Emmerdale, wasn't he, for a while? When it was Emmerdale Farm, probably, yeah. Mm. Michael Robbins, uh, known for his comic work and on the buses. <laughs> I, One, I like that clear distinction. <laughs> 176 screen credits in all, which includes plenty of serious stuff in single plays and three Avengers points. Ed Bishop, but he was in The Last Saint. <laughs> David Jackson, we've mentioned. Robert Bruce. Yeah, that's a name that sounds familiar. One point, a respectable number of screen appearances and doubtless would have had more, but dying at the age of only 49. So that wraps it up for The Saint Steps In. Now, there's going to be a short hiatus while you do the International Man of Mystery thing. I am. I'm going to Italy. That's all I can really say. I can't say anything. What's quite interesting is you were talking before about location usage and town that my brother lives in, Ofida was used as a location a couple of years ago for um, an Italian TV drama. And one of the favourite cafes that we go to, um, in Ascoli Pacino, Cafe Minetti, goes all the way back to its use in the Dustin Hoffman 1960s film, Alfredo Alfredo. Oh, right. OK. So they've obviously got um, a regular booking for TV crews. Yeah, all I know about the next episode is called The Loving Brothers, which sounds as if it has the potential to also be the last line of the piece, and in which um, Roger takes on some Aussie scallywags. Two brothers played by Reg Lye and Ray Barrett, and a third brother, Ed Devereaux, are all um, up to no good. But we've got lovely Annette Andre to also helm the piece as well. Don't know whether she's going to do an Australian accent. Well, she's from Don't there. Know. Ah, right. Oh, so she will be able to do it. Um, and yeah, it's one of the first episodes that is set in Australia. Mm. So it's going to be interesting talking about locations, the challenge that the production design team and location manager um, will do to convince us that we are in the Australian outback. I know they did it for an episode of The Champions when there's a nuclear bomb about to be detonated, but let's see how they do it in this. Yes, yeah, I think there's basically a lot of sand in the studio and probably a lot of glycerin sprayed on the actors. Yes, um, and the use of the cyclorama at the back. <laughs> yes, we'll see what happens. I, I wonder what the saint's excuse for being in Australia is. Yeah, what's it? You've got to see a cricket match? Don't know. Not in the outback. It's, <laughs> it's an away game. I don't know. <laughs> So that brings us up to our current standing in the Black and White Saints Series 3. We shall reconvene once you're back from your European... So I jet off this, this Friday early morning, but I'm overnight at Manchester Airport, and then return the following Friday, straight back into a, a train strike. <laughs> so I'm figuring out the best way to get back from Manchester Airport. I'm wondering whether the pilot... I ask him to drop me off at Leeds on the way over. <laughs> Can that be done? 
Possibly, but you might have to take your own parachute. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dave. Thank you. This has been Roast into Black and White Television, the review show. We have been reviewing black and white episodes of The Saint, Series 3, currently going out on Talking Pictures TV. I'm Guy Morgan. My co-host has been David Newell. And thank we you. will be back shortly. I thank you. Mm-hmm.